we began the book of Micah uh, just this past week as a part of our series, The Hidden Prophets. We're walking through 12 books in the Old Testament uh, that are known as the Minor Prophets, and this is our fourth, uh, the book of Micah. And we will get to Micah chapter 3 in just a moment. If you need a Bible, as always, we have some back here on our resource table. Feel free to grab one. If you don't have one at home, please take that with you and let it be our gift to you today. So there is a phrase that we use a lot around here, and it dawned on me this past week that we may not all have a full grasp of what we're talking about when we use this phrase. And the phrase is cultural Christianity. Cultural Christianity. Uh, It's a phrase we use a lot because it's, one, something that's like rampant in our area, but it's also one of the things that I think we're fighting as a church, just in the way that we've kind of postured ourselves and structured things around here. But, but what is it exactly, and why, why is it like a bad thing? I mean, don't we all want like a Christian culture? Here's an extended definition on cultural Christianity, and this comes from a, a really great website called gotquestions.org. Um, And it's a a fantastic site that I point people to all the time who just have basic questions about the Christian faith. Um, And it's a great source for answers that are um, orthodox and conservative in nature. But here's their definition for cultural Christianity. This is kind of long, but let me read this to you. Cultural Christianity is religion that superficially identifies itself as Christianity but does not truly adhere to the faith. A cultural Christian is a nominal believer. That word nominal just means in name only. He wears the label Christian, but the label has more to do with his family background and upbringing than any personal conviction that Jesus is Lord. Cultural Christianity is more social than spiritual. A cultural Christian identifies with certain aspects of Christianity, such as the good works of Jesus, but rejects the spiritual aspects required to be a biblically defined Christian. Some people consider themselves Christians because of their family background, personal experience, country of residence, or social environment. Others identify as Christian as a way of declaring religious affiliation as being opposed to like being Muslim or Buddhist. It's almost a way of saying, I'm I'm not those things, so I guess I'm Christian. In free nations, the gospel is often presented as a costless addition to one's life. Just add church going to your hobbies, add charitable giving to your list of good deeds, or add the cross to the trophies on your mantle. In this way, many people go through the motions of accepting Jesus with no accompanying surrender to his lordship. These people who do not abide in Christ are cultural Christians. They are branches that hang around the true vine but have no true attachment. And that's referencing John 15 where Jesus talks about the vine and the branches and abiding in the true vine. There was no such thing as cultural Christianity in the days of the early church. In fact, to be a Christian was 
to more than likely be marked as a target of persecution. The very term Christian was coined in the city of Antioch as a way to identify the first followers of Christ. You can read about that in Acts 11. The first disciples were so much like Jesus that they were called little Christs, Christians, by their detractors. Unfortunately, the term has lost meaning over the years and has come to represent an ideology or a social class rather than a lifestyle of obedience to God. So that's what we're talking about when we talk about cultural Christianity. And we see that kind of thing around here a lot today. In this part of the country in Shreveport, you can go to other parts of the country where it's less the case. But at least here in the South where we are, there are many, many, many people who are cultural Christians. Maybe you know some of them. In fact, I guarantee you, you know some of them. Maybe you are one. Or maybe you have been at some point in your life. Or maybe you grew up in a family that identified as Christian, even though there was little evidence for that claim. But this is not a 21st century American phenomenon by any stretch. You can find religious nominalism in every world religion and just about anywhere you go. I know cultural Jews, nominal Jews who identify as Jewish simply because that's their family of origin or that's their ethnic heritage, but they don't believe in God, which is fascinating. There are cultural Muslims There are cultural Buddhists and on and on. But nominalism especially thrives in environments where two particular social qualities are in place, power and peace, power and peace. And by peace, I don't necessarily mean like military peace, like there isn't war going on. I mean peace from persecution, like freedom from being persecuted for my religious beliefs. In any place, at any time, when a particular group is in power and is also free from religious persecution, the religious heritage of that group will tend to become nominalized. And the reason why is because the element of risk is removed. The element of risk is removed. Will it cost me anything? No. Right? Is my life at stake? No. Is anybody going to make fun of me? Probably not. I'm in. I'm in. The problem with nominalism is that it like gives like the appearance of faith, but it isn't true faith. It's exactly what Paul was talking about to his apprentice Timothy in 2 Timothy 3 when he said, but understand this, in the last days, there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self. See if this sounds familiar to you. People will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Listen, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. Isn't that fascinating? That list that he goes through, people who are lovers of self, lovers of money, arrogant, abusive, disobedient, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, yet somehow having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. But this isn't just a problem for us to like tackle in our day, as I've said. 
It wasn't just a problem in Paul's day. It was also a significant issue for Israel. And as we will see, Micah speaks to it as well. As we learned last week, Micah is a prophet. He's from the southern region of Israel known as Judah. But his prophecy is directed at the whole of the Hebrew people, the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah. He's kind of speaking to everyone, but he's doing it from his home base in the southern kingdom of Judah. Now, the north, as we've learned, was thoroughly pagan. Like, there would maybe be some, like, occasionally some religious rituals that were directed at Yahweh, but really they were more focused on the Canaanite gods that they worshiped. Like, we've talked about Baal and Asheroth, those were two of the big ones. And so they were doing horrible things. Like, we've talked about sacrificing children and, like, all kinds of, like, sexual rituals that they would take part in as a result of this. Um, so, the, so the north was just like thoroughly pagan. The south, however, where Micah was, was still the home of traditional Hebrew worship. It was still the home of the temple, right? And and even though there was one evil king that Micah lived under, there were two God-fearing, God-honoring kings that he lived under as well. And one in particular named Hezekiah, who we talked about last week, had had really started to restore Hebrew worship to what it once was, like under the time of David, like really reinstating the full spectrum of things like the Passover, which were at one point in time pivotal in the Hebrew religion. Hezekiah is bringing it back. And so Jerusalem seemingly is the seat of Hebrew worship. However, there is an element of nominalism that is infiltrating where people want to treat God like he's some kind of lucky talisman or lucky charm. So so read with me this morning. Micah chapter 3, we're going to begin in verse 9, and you can just leave your Bible open in front of you. Micah Micah 3, verse 9. Hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, who detest justice and make crooked all that is straight, who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity, Its heads give judgment for a bribe. Its priests teach for a price. Its prophets prophets practice divination for money. Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins and the mountain of the house a wooded height. The word of the Lord. Unless you've been living under a rock for the last few years, you have probably heard more about justice and social justice and, in particular, injustice more than any other time in your life over the last few years. On the news, social media, conversations with friends and family, it seems like we're inundated not only with calls for justice, but also opposing voices that would say that what some people call injustice is actually not injustice. So there's all of this back and forth going on. And if you haven't picked up on it yet, the exact same thing was true for the minor prophets, right? Like they're constantly calling out injustices that they see in the land. With Amos, a lot of the injustice surrounded the treatment of the poor. But Micah in particular approaches his subject with the lens of justice. Like justice itself is a central issue for him. and, and he calls out not only injustice in the land, but he also, as we said last week, presents a case, like a legal case almost, against the people's injustice. And the purpose of his case is to point to God's perfect justice. 
is to reveal to everybody that even though they are unjust, God is perfectly just, and as a result, they should repent and turn to him. So he's presenting this case, and next week, we will read Micah's most famous words in which he tells the people that what the Lord most wants from them is to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with their God. And so so next week, we're going to really consider what that means, what does it mean to do justice, and and how is Micah approaching this through the lens of justice. We'll see some of that today, but what I really want to zero in on is here in the middle of this text. It's in the middle of verse 11, where after describing all the unjust practices of the people, they build Zion, which is another word for Jerusalem. They build Zion with blood, and they give judgment. Judges judge and give judgment for a bribe, and priests teach for a price, and prophets practice divination for money. It says, yet, yet, they lean on the Lord. They're doing all of those unjust things, and yet somehow they lean on the Lord and say, is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. Here's how Eugene Peterson interprets this passage in the message. He says, the leaders of Jacob and the leaders of Israel are leaders contemptuous of justice, who twist and distort right living, leaders who build Zion by killing people, who expand Jerusalem by committing crimes. Judges sell verdicts to the highest bidder. Priests mass market their teaching. Prophets preach for high fees, all the while posturing and pretending dependence on God. We've got God on our side. He'll protect us from disaster. Posturing and pretending we've got God on our side. Now, in ancient Israel and Judah, there were basically two types of people who had power, and they're the people that Micah is addressing today in chapter 3, politicians and prophets, political leaders and religious leaders. So throughout this whole chapter, he's describing political and religious leaders and and what they are doing, wicked things, and, and, and who are also so deluded that they think God is actually on their side. It's so similar to what we read Paul saying just a moment ago where all of these horrible things are happening like lovers of self and they're arrogant and they're haughty and they're, and they're disobedient and they're, they love pleasure and all of these things and yet somehow there's an appearance of godliness. The exact same thing is going on here. It's an appearance. It's a pretending. It's a posturing. Building Jerusalem at all costs and rigging trials and 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 I think the connotation here is priests who are like who are like on the take who who will tell you whatever it is you want to hear if you give them enough money and 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 prophets who will kind of function as fortune tellers for you. What is it you want to hear? What is it you want to know about the future? You give me enough money and I'll I'll give it to you. It's all business, isn't it? And yet business with an appearance of godliness. It's cultural faith. It's nominalism. In other words, it isn't real. And God is clear in verse 12. Because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field, right? There's a a warning. There's a curse that is coming as a result of this. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins and the mountain of the house a wooded height. For this reason among many, 
destruction was coming. And this is another way in which we take the Lord's name in vain. We talked about that a few weeks ago. I put him on because I think it will benefit me in some way, some earthly way, not because of any true like spiritual conviction. I take on his name because it does something for me. And guys, he hates that. He hates that. And what Micah shows us is this. This is, this is, this is so important here. Religious nominalism is not only wrong in and of itself, but it also leads to injustice. Religious nominalism is not only wrong in and of itself, but it also leads to injustice. In a messed up way, it provides a pseudo-spiritual justification for the perpetrators of injustice. In a February 2018 Time Magazine article entitled, How Christian Slaveholders Used the Bible to Justify Slavery, the words of abolitionist Frederick Douglass were quoted. And and here's what Frederick Douglass said. Between the Christianity of this land, meaning America, and the Christianity of Christ, I recognize the widest possible difference. So wide that to receive the one as good, pure, and holy is of necessity to reject the other as bad, corrupt, and wicked. To be the friend of the one is of necessity to be the enemy of the other. He says, I love the pure, peaceable, and impartial Christianity of Christ. I therefore hate the corrupt, slaveholding, women-whipping, cradle-plundering, partial and hypocritical Christianity of this land. Indeed, I can see no reason but for the most deceitful one for calling the religion of this land Christianity. That's powerful. The article goes on to point out uh, like just the, the myriad of dubious biblical justifications that pastors and people made for something that was ultimately making them a lot of money, the slave trade. Same thing was true with Western colonialism in general. Yes, we're killing, and yes, we're conquering, and yes, we're enslaving people, and yes, we're taking all their land because we want their resources and their money, But we're really doing this to evangelize them. We're we're really doing this so that they'll hear the gospel and become Christians like us. We're doing it for them. So in light of this, I want to call us to three practices today. Three practices that I think we have to engage in if we're going to be on guard against this kind of thing creeping into our own lives. If you remember last week, Micah painted this picture that the paganism and sin of the North was like a disease that was slowly creeping into the South. And, and, and the reality is, is that the same kind of thing can happen to us. If we're not practicing spiritual disciplines like Justin was talking about earlier, then it's very easy to kind of wake up one day and go, what in the world am I doing? Why am I practicing this? Why am I thinking in this way? It's because if our minds are not constantly being renewed in Christ and set on him, we will easily find ourselves out in left field. So Three practices that we need to engage in in light of this. First of all, we need to do biblical exegesis rather than eisegesis. And let me write these down. 
in case you're taking notes. We want to do biblical exegesis rather than eisegesis. Exegesis is the work of mining the scripture so as to let it speak for itself. We want to extract from the Bible what is true. It's the work of uncovering the true meaning, the true intention, the true interpretation of any text. It is the point of Bible study, right? The point of Bible study is that I would come away with an understanding of what the Bible teaches. Eisegesis, on the other hand, is simply inserting our own opinions, our own perspectives into the text. I'm not going to extract the true meaning. I'm going to insert my own meaning into it. It's about making the Bible say what we want it to say. The Time Magazine article I mentioned earlier quotes a man named Bishop Stephen Elliott of Georgia, who was a Christian bishop uh, during the time of slavery. And, And here was his justification for slavery. Listen to this. At this very moment, there are from three to four millions of Africans educating for earth and for heaven in the so vilified southern states. Listen, learning the very best lessons for a semi-barbarous people. Lessons of self-control, of obedience, of perseverance, of adaptation, of means to ends. Learning above all where their weakness lies and how they may acquire strength for the battle of life. These considerations satisfy me with their condition and assure me it is the best relation they can for the present be made to occupy. So I don't know if you noticed there, but in part, he's using the words of the apostle Paul. Think about when Paul talks about the fruit of the spirit, like like the kinds of things the Lord wants to produce in our lives. He he, he mentions those. He mentions self-control and obedience and perseverance. And and somehow he's saying that slaves are learning all of these things through slavery. So slavery must be good. That's eisegesis. He couldn't even quote the whole text, right? He had to paraphrase it, and he had to kind of grab some words from different places to put it together. Injustice thrives in eisegesis, and it cowers in exegesis. When we're extracting the true meaning of Scripture, it becomes very difficult for that type of ridiculousness to perpetuate and thrive. So we have to be so careful, guys, as we're engaging the scriptures to not just listen to other voices and what they say to be true of the scripture, but to engage it ourselves and to do the work that God has graciously and mercifully given us all the ability to do of actually engaging biblical texts and asking the question, what is true and what is real? Secondly, we must be willing to take social risks for the gospel. Social risks for the gospel. Remember I said cultural Christianity thrives in an environment that is low risk. It doesn't cost me anything, right? I don't have to give up anything. No one's going to persecute me. So, yeah, I'll take on that title. 
That's why real Christian faith tends to explode in places where risk is high. China today is a closed country, meaning Western missionaries can't go in there and share the gospel, even though some do under, uh, under like cover and in secrecy. But Christianity in China is exploding. It's exploding to the point where they're sending missionaries to us. Risk is high. Following the death of Christ when the early church was powerless and persecuted, guess what? Christianity exploded. Even during the period in the 200s, known as the Great Persecution, where the Roman Emperor Diocletian was killing Christians by the thousands, Christianity exploded to the point where only a few decades later, it was the predominant religion in the Roman Empire. How do you explain that? What was actually happening on the ground was that pagan Romans were watching Christians go to their death repeatedly. Over and over, they're seeing these scenes, and they're watching how they act and how they behaved and how they responded in the midst of their impending deaths. And just watching Christians willingly go to their deaths for the sake of the gospel led Romans to Christ. It's incredible. So it shouldn't be surprising for us that Christianity in America today is waning. The conditions are perfect for it to do so. And this is going to continue to be the case unless true Christians become willing to take social risks for the sake of the gospel. So what do I mean by social risk? I, I mean choosing the way of Jesus over fear and over your perceived safety and comfort. Wendy Alsop writes, I have often chosen safety over risk in terms of ministry opportunities for myself, thinking, I can't allow this person access into my life because they might insert fear. I don't want this person in my community because they might dot, 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 insert your own fear there. If the truth is told, such fear is often legitimate. If I allow a single mom to stay in my house, she might steal my, sil my silverware, my pearls, right? If I take in a foster child, they might cause me emotional or physical pain. If I minister to the poor, someone might take advantage of me. All of those things are true. Those are valid concerns. Those are real things that could happen. But also it goes on to point out, though, when we read the New Testament or missionary biographies or the history of the early church, we see again and again that the walk of faith involves risk. When we Christians don't want to risk for the good of the oppressed, I think we don't understand much of Jesus or the New Testament church, that they lose their lives so that they will find their lives. I use the phrase social risk because I think that's what most of us most often face, if we're being honest. It's not a risk to our lives in most cases. It's a risk that some people who I want to please will be displeased. Or that I'll be ostracized. Family, friends, etc. Bring some context to Jesus' words about people hating their mother and father and brother and sister. If I'm really following Christ, more than likely there are going to be people who don't like it. And who don't want to be around me anymore. Don't want to talk to me anymore. Are we willing as a people to risk losing a little bit of safety or a little bit of comfort for the sake of the gospel? 
In places where true faith is exploding, the answer is absolutely yes. Of course we are. Finally, number three, we need to be extremely careful and discerning of the voices that we allow to speak into our lives. We live in a world where in seconds we can find other voices with platforms and with followers to support any thought or opinion we might have, no matter how crazy or unhinged or misguided or unbiblical it might be. And the tendency is to think that just because I can find other voices to support my thinking, then I must be right. In Micah's day, people were paying for it. Right? We're paying prophets. We're paying preachers. We're paying priests to tell us exactly what we want to hear. This isn't new. We just have quicker and greater access to it than ever before through the internet. And all of this makes me feel better about myself because all these professional religious people are telling me what I want to hear. I think a big part of the purpose of studying the scriptures is is not so that we can just learn what to think, but so that we can also learn how to think. How to process thoughts and ideas, whether our own or from other people, and arrive at truthful conclusions. But one of the things we harp on is that we are not meant to do that in a vacuum or alone. We're meant to do that in community with other people. Your biblical community, I think, is supposed to be the core of voices who are speaking into your life and who you are wrestling together with the scriptures, right? You're you're engaging the Bible together. You're processing thoughts and ideas together. This This is exactly what the disciples were doing as they followed Christ. They're like digesting and processing the things that Jesus has said. But listen, a big part of learning how to think is learning to embrace humility, isn't it? I don't know it all. I don't think perfectly about everything. I don't have it all together. And that sometimes the things that I want are not the things that are best for me or the things that are the most true or profitable. I want, if I'm real, I want power and security and money and freedom and control and and on and on and on. I want all of those things. And, And yet with those things comes a weighty temptation to not put my trust in God, but to put it in myself. And what the gospel is calling me to is to not put my hope or trust in those things, but instead to put it squarely in the person of Christ. And certainly not to put it in myself. And so I need voices in my life that push back against that. That don't just tell me what I want to hear, but help direct me towards the cross. That help me see my proclivity to pursue comfort over gospel risk. And so do you. Uh, One big suggestion here. Here's something that I think would be a big asset, a big help to all of us. Would be if we all de-emphasized digital voices in our life. If some of the primary spiritual voices in your life are people you don't know and don't know you, who you hear on podcasts or YouTube videos or social media, I think, we, I think at the very least you may want to consider reining that in. And now listen, the operative word there is primary, primary spiritual voices. That's not to say that some of those digital voices you're listening to are untruthful or wrong or lying to you or anything like that. You're probably listening to some great stuff. I've benefited greatly from 
listening to Tim Keller preach sermons, right? I mean, I really have. I've learned some great stuff from him. But at the same time, Tim Keller is not a part of my life. I don't know him. He does not know me. He's not my pastor, right? He's not walking with me. And so even though some things he said have been really helpful to me, I more so need people who know me and see my life and from a place of gospel truth can call me on my sin and say hard things to me and walk with me as I seek to become more like Christ. That is discipleship. It's not just listening to teachers. It's walking with people in the pursuit of Christ. And that's harder and it's riskier, but it's better. That's the whole reason we do spiritual coaching as a part of our discipleship paradigm. It's a relational thing. It's doing life together. It's why we place a high value on being a smaller church. It gives us more ability to do this together and to actually be in each other's lives and and not just be like acquaintances that we see on Sundays and don't see again at all throughout the rest of the week. I need someone who is pursuing Christ, walking with me while I pursue Christ, not just a disembodied voice, the other end of my earbuds, not someone I pay to agree with me either. There's a lot of that going on as well, isn't there? But someone who pushes me to fully submit to Christ and to put sin to death and to embrace his mission, in other words, a real faith, not a nominal faith. And guys, I fully believe that that's what being a pastor is all about. Being a pastor is not about like running an organization. It's, it's certainly not simply about public speaking. It's primarily about helping believers to have a holistic faith that permeates all of life. And nothing would bring me greater joy than for someone to be inspired to live a life of risky Christ followership because of things that they've seen in your lives. And things that they have heard come out of your mouth. That other people would see the way that we live together. See the ways that we make decisions and the things that we pursue. And would also be compelled to give over the whole of their life to Christ. And so this morning, let me me just close by leading us into a moment of prayer. And a moment of examination as well. Right, we, we, we really should never listen to the scriptures or read the scriptures without taking a moment to examine ourselves and the ways that it shines a light on us and our own sin, the things we need to put to death, the ways we need to submit more of our being to Christ. And so let us go to him this morning and ask him through his spirit to reveal those things to us. Father, In the time of Micah, we see a people who has just completely gone astray, and yet when we look at our world today, Father, it's difficult not to just draw the parallels. It it can seem as if much the same thing is happening, and I think by all accounts it is. And and Father, we are are people who are living in this culture every day. God, we're living in this world every day, and we face temptation every day. It's one of the reasons why you've called us to pray that we wouldn't be led into temptation. And yet, Father, so often, just through the schemes of the enemy and our own flesh and our own sin, we, we wind up thinking things and doing things that are not of you, 
don't glorify you, don't honor you. And Lord, we need your forgiveness. I pray this morning, Father, that you would reveal for each of us the ways in which maybe we've pursued comfort or power or money or success or whatever over you, over submission to the way of Christ. And it's not something that just some of us are guilty of, Father. It's something we're all guilty of. It's something we've all done. And and in many cases, without even thinking twice. Reveal those things to us this morning, Father, and, and give us your grace and your Holy Spirit so that we might do away with them in our lives, so that we might turn and pursue Christ with a vigor maybe we've never experienced before. Father, waken our hearts to your Spirit and his presence within us. Give us courage and boldness. Give us a desire to please you first and foremost, not anybody else around us. Give us wisdom, Father, and and humility as we act in this. May we cling to your gospel as the only hope. And in life and death, I am not my own, but I belong to God. In the name of Jesus, amen.